Welcome back to the Vine Church Podcast. Today we are continuing our study, Why Did Jonah Run? Unpacking the Book of Jonah. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Odium and Church Crookham, and we'd love to have you join us over there. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome back to another part of Jonah in part three now. Uh, very exciting. We're finally going to open up the book of Jonah today, uh, which I'm quite excited about getting into. So if you have your Bibles, please do open Jonah. Uh, Also, same as I said last week, the handout for this part is in the description. So, um, and, and once again, if you can't work out how to get it from there, then email me or message me somehow and I will get it to you. But it's just some helpful notes and a handout to kind of so you can follow along and remember any kind of important information that I uh, give. Um, and as I, as I said last week as well, if you have a question as we go through, please do put it live in the live comments. One of the things that we wanted, why I wanted to do this live, was so we could interact real time. If you had anything that you were wondering, then do tell me, and we can uh, hash it out in this. Or not hash it out, but I can give a give an explanation. So, a quick recap. So, last part one, we looked at how the situation in Israel is miserable at the time of Jonah. That he was writing in seven in the seven sixties, and that they were going to be destroyed for their idolatry in seven two two. That's a historical fact that we can all go and verify 722 BC the Assyrians destroyed Israel so Jonah is writing at a time of real idolatry and awfulness and he's writing contemporarily or contemporaneously I don't know which one's right uh, but with Amos and Hosea and yep so that's that's something we looked at last week no the next one so part two we looked at how um, in the old in the Mosaic covenant, one of the covenant curses is when they are unfaithful, God sends his blessings that would be on Israel to a Gentile nation and he will judge Israel. So that's where we start from. So if you open up your Bibles, as I say, to Jonah, let's get into it. So I'm only going to read the first two verses. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Sorry, that was that was in verse three now. But yes, Jonah arose and fled to Tarshish. Okay, so there's, there's a couple of things to note. One of the things is we have to remember that Jonah knows everything that we've looked at in part one and two very well. Like I said last time, he is a prophet. It's his business to know the scriptures like the back of his hand. So he knows everything that we know very well. So verse two gives us two different but very related points. The first thing is that when Jonah hears, leave Israel and prophesied to a Gentile nation, he knows exactly what that means for his own people. 
Remember how in the first part we looked at how he was in uh, Gath Hefer, which is in the very middle of the Northern Kingdom. That's like he's in the very heart of Israel. It's not like he's gone and it would be bad enough if he was told to go somewhere else because he's leaving his people there. But now he's told to pick up and go completely out of the camp. You know, we saw how Elijah went to Zarephath. Well, that was outside the camp of Israel. But Nineveh, that's a whole other thing. That's ages away. So he knows exactly what that means for his own people. And he knows that that means judgment is coming on my own people. The second thing that it tells us, if we jump to Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, he says, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, this is not what is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah knows that um, Nineveh are going to repent. He knows that they are going to turn around and listen to him and repent. That's why he wanted to run away. Now, this is a big deal because they're repenting whilst Israel remains unrepentant. So he, he doesn't run because, well, I don't like the, Ninevi- the Ninevites and I don't want them to repent. He runs because he knows that they will while his own people refuse to, which only makes Israel look even worse. And we're going we're gonna to explore that a little bit. So, so what I would say right at the beginning, and we're going to explore it, is this whole book is about Israel, not Nineveh. Um, so we're going to look at that. Now, the first thing you might say to me is, uh, okay, Israel isn't even in this book. You're reading that into the text. Fair enough. So let's, let's look at that issue. How can I say it's about Israel when Israel aren't even in it? So one of the ways we can look at this is, uh, do you remember how in part one I said uh, that prophets who are around in the same place at the same time are almost always, and you can try this with any of the prophets, it's not just some wild theory, are almost always prophesying about the same thing. They are almost always making the same point in different words. Because if God has sent a prophet, it's because something's going wrong or something, yeah. So they're, they're very likely going to be saying the same things. So let's compare Jonah with his contemporaries. And we saw in the first part that he was around at the same time in the same place as Amos and as Hosea. Now, we read through sections of Hosea and sections of Amos, and we found that Israel's sin unrepentance and coming destruction was a big theme in those books. Now, I have some uh, some figures to tell you. Amos and Hosea mention the word Israel in a judgment context 77 times between the two of them, 45 times in Hosea, 32 times in Amos. The whole minor prophets, the whole 12 books of which these two are a part, and Jonah, mentions Israel 115 times, and 77 of those times come from Hosea and Amos. 
So 67% of the times that Israel is mentioned in a judgment context are from Jonah's contemporaries. So 45 times for Hosea, 32 times for Amos. How many times is Israel mentioned in Jonah? Absolutely zero. That is not, therefore, saying that Jonah is um, unconcerned with Israel. In fact, quite the opposite. This silence is supposed to be absolutely deafening to us. I mean, even just just look at in uh, chapter one, verses eight and nine, the sailors that are on the boat with Jonah ask him, tell us on whose account has this evil come upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? And he says to them, not I'm from Israel and I'm an Israelite. He says, I'm a Hebrew, which is technically correct. But if you go and read your Old Testament, you'll find that no one's called themselves a Hebrew since the Pentateuch, since the first five books of the Bible. Ever since Israel became a nation, everyone just calls themselves Israelites. We're Israelites, we're from Israel. Hebrew is like, would like me calling myself, um, can't think of an example quick enough off the bat, uh, it'd be using an archaic word for, to describe myself. Um, it's it's clearly showing something that he's avoiding saying Israel, Israelite. And I think it's for the sake of the narrative. The silence on the word Israel is deafening. And, what, and I think it's for a purpose. I don't think it's just coincidental. The silence is supposed to be so so when israel read this because bear in mind jonah is a prophet to israel and so when he's done this and it's written down it would be read in israel the silence of them are supposed to give them the same sense of indifference as what they have given to god uh, think of it like that uh, many of you know that i'm married to the beautiful anna if one of you were to come across a diary of mine I don't keep a diary, but if I were to start doing one, you would probably find entries along the lines of Monday. Today, Anna and I took Evangeline out for a short walk. Then we made dinner. Good day. Tuesday. Today, Anna and I sat and watched a film. Then we played a game. Da, da, da. Wednesday, Anna and I had a big argument. Not great. Thursday, no mention of Anna whatsoever. I talk about how great my life is and that I go and do something by myself and there's no mention of her whatsoever. That would not be saying, oh, well, they must have made up. In fact, me completely avoiding, neglecting to mention her would be making a point that I'm just going to live as though she's not even part of my life. That's like the ultimate uh, I suppose, almost um, animosity towards her, that I won't even mention her. And it's quite a common thing in the ancient world to do that. So they wouldn't mention the names of kings who they had defeated because mentioning them would be giving them some credibility. Uh, if you think about the story of um, uh, about David in 2 Samuel 12, after he's 
slept with Bathsheba and Nathan comes to him and condemns him, he does so not by saying, King David, you've been a very bad king. He does so by telling him a story with nameless characters in order to rouse a kind of emotional reaction from David. So he tells him there's this man who has lots of sheep and another person who only has one sheep and he takes them. And David is infuriated and said, this man needs to be killed. And Nathan then says, that man is you. The silence of the names speak louder once you know who it's about. So that's what Jonah is doing here. That's what the book is doing. Their complete silence among us. I mean, if you read the minor prophets, if you just read, sit down and read the 12, you will find that Israel and Judah are the main characters except for God. I mean, as I, as I say, Hosea and Amos are full of conversations on them because they are in Israel. Obviously, the other prophets are in Judah, so they talk a lot about Judah. Um, so that's a really big point, I think, um, that there is this deafening silence about the people of Israel. Um, as I say, if you find the diary and Anna's not in it, you didn't think that me and Anna were good friends, although you, you wouldn't even think that we just had a spat. You'd think something's really gone wrong for me to completely cut her out of my life like that. You know, you kind of hear, um, uh, thankfully, I've never come across it in real life, but on uh, TV shows and films, when there's been a real breakup between an estranged father and a son, you hear something like, oh, I have no son. That is worse than saying, me and my son don't talk. That's worse than saying, I don't like my son. To say, I have no son. I don't even know who you're talking about. That is the ultimate kind of wound. And that's what God is doing to Israel through Jonah. Um, so that's a really big point. So if you've read through Jonah before and never noticed how he talks about Israel, you're off the hook. It's, it's fine. But the silence is, is, making, is, is going to be a deafening point. The other big thing, as I alluded to, as I said earlier, is Nineveh's repentance makes Israel look even worse than they are. So um, if you think about it like this, and we'll, we'll kind of explore this a little bit more, but Israel has had countless prophets. I mean, you just read the book of Kings. How many prophets does it take to tell them that they're sinning? They've had prophet after prophet after prophet. And we, and we read this in Amos, actually. We saw in part one that one of the themes were, in, in Amos it says, I have sent prophets, and yet you command them, do not prophesy. So one of the themes has been, it's not like you've had enough chances. I've sent prophet after prophet, and yet you still won't repent. Meanwhile, Jonah goes over to a place which has never known God before. They're not in covenant with him. They're not in any relationship with him. They don't have the scriptures. They don't have the prophets. They send a prophet and he says one line of prophecy. So in Jonah chapter three, Jonah began to go into the city on a day's journey and he called out in yet 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. One line of prophecy and the whole city, from the kings to the commoners, repent. Now, God can hold that up. You know, imagine the kind of the court of law scene. God can hold that up to Israel and say, how many chances did you have? And how many chances did they have? 
I have sent you numerous chances and you didn't repent. They had one guy speak a sentence and they put sackcloth on. So that's a, uh, that's a thing that we're going to explore now. So I think Gentile repentance is a big theme in this book because it serves as a mirror, holds Israel up. So let's, let's look at Gentile repentance. So if you, uh, again, in chapter one, we, uh, we read this. Um, if we go down to verse 10. So after they've asked Jonah where he's from, it says, Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quieten down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me in the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So in the first chapter, we see a Jew, one of God's people, an Israelite, disobeys God, turns from his commandments and runs away. Meanwhile, he meets some Gentiles who almost immediately after meeting them are now offering sacrifices to God and um, making vows to him which if you read the Old Testament, making vows to God is, uh, so Psalm 65 verse 1, for instance, talks about making vows to God being a kind of uh, saying, I am God's. It's a way of kind of marking the rest of your life as, as belonging to the God of Israel. So in the first chapter, we see one of God's people running away and being disobedient, which brings Gentiles in. So that, that's one area that we see it. And then again, as we've already read in chapter 3, it says, um, it, it, it talks about Jonah's giving his prophecy. And then he says, and then it says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do, and he did not do it. So you have both Nineveh repenting and the Gentiles repenting. Meanwhile, back home, those who know God, who are in covenant with him, are refusing to repent and are holding on to their idolatry. So the, the point here is that Nineveh is being held up like a mirror to Israel. And so when, when we, and I think there's kind of a, I don't want to sound flippant, but I think kind of using our uh, language, we can almost use the phrase passive aggressive um, slant to this. So verse 10, chapter three, verse 10, when God saw what they did, and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. This is almost God saying, I mean what I say. If you repent, I'm not going to destroy you. It's, it's that simple. It, you know, I used the example the other day of, of you know, like a mother punishing the child um, when I talked about prophecy. Well, I think you can kind of use the same um, punishment here, uh, the same analogy here. This is like a permanent what I said. If you say you're sorry, whatever privilege is back. Um, and that's kind of used as a, as a way to further 
the, the punishment further the disobedience of the other child. You know, I gave you a chance and you broke it. Um, so they are being used here to say, Israel, if you would just repent, I'm going to, I'm going to save you. And yet you refuse. Which is a really, um, it's a really big point, really. So if we, if we jump to Matthew 12, we'll see why. So if you have in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 12, verses 38. So I said in the first part that um, Jonah is never quoted. There's no verses from Jonah quoted in the New Testament, but the story of Jonah is all over the New Testament. And we're going to see that more in um, part five and part six. But this is one way that we can see it. This is one area that we see it. In Matthew 12, bear in mind, Jesus is in Israel And one of the things that he keeps saying to the Israelites is you are an unfaithful generation, a wicked generation, an adulterous generation, uh, just like it was for Jonah. So in Matthew 12, verse 38, Jesus says this. Well, it says this. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now listen to this. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the teaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus is saying, those Ninevites will have the right, the privilege of standing up and condemning you because whilst all they had was some prophet coming along and speaking a sentence, you guys had the son of God. So Nineveh's repentance over one line of prophecy furthers the condemnation of the people that Jesus is talking to, you know, so for, for they will rise up and condemn it for or because they repented at the teaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So that's, that's one of the big things that's going on in Jonah. The reason we keep seeing Gentile repentance is because it furthers Israel's punishment that is coming. And historically, we know that it did come 40 years after Jonah was preaching. We know that the Assyrians, which Nineveh is the capital of, very interestingly, the Assyrians came to Israel and in 722 leveled it to the ground. So the the point I'd want to make is that this book doesn't merely contain a prophecy. The whole narrative of the book is prophecy. So you could read Jonah and say, it's funny that they put it in the prophecy section because it's only got one verse of prophecy in it. But that's not the case. The whole book is a prophecy against Israel. And this is, this is not a new or a novel view. This is what the early church taught. This is what most Jewish writers at the time taught. I can, I can send, if anyone wants, is curious about that, I can send you links to ancient Jewish writings where they talk about Jonah, and I can send you early church documents where they describe, where they understand Jonah in this way. It's, it's a very modern interpretation where we see this as a kind of, well, as, as, when we divorce it from the context of Jonah being a prophet to Israel. Um, 
Yes. So the whole point of the book is that Jonah is reluctantly prophesying judgment on his own people. He is, he has to be the one who is carrying out that curse of the covenant in Deuteronomy. That's the point. That's why he runs. He's not running because he just doesn't like Nineveh. He's running out of love, fear, whatever you want to call it, for his own people, which I think is, he's still disobedient, but it's much more relatable. It's, we can, you can kind of understand that a lot more. And then just a small point to make. I might be completely wrong about this. That's fine. I don't mind being wrong every now and again. Um, but I think that there's something interesting here. If you read Numbers 14, 34, it says that, uh, it says just, uh, and you will, um, on the wilderness for 40 years, a year for each day that you grumbled against me. So they were grumbling for 40 days, and that translates to 40 years of judgment. And I won't give you all the references, but that theme is picked up a lot of times throughout the Bible. So they use the phrase, this generation, which is a, is a time slot for 40 years um, of a 40-year gap. So the 40 days translate to 40 years. I might be wrong about this, but I find it very interesting that Jonah, that Israel is destroyed 40 years after Jonah writes, and the prophecy that Jonah is given to, to say is him saying, in 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, if, I, if we're right about the whole thing of Nineveh's prophecy is a mirror against Israel, then really what you're reading is, and again, I might be wrong, but I think what we're reading here is in yet 40 days, um, or yet 40 days Nineveh shall be overthrown, which really means in 40 years Israel will be overthrown. Might be wrong about that, but I just think that's very coincidental otherwise. So I hope that's given you a lot to chew on. I noticed that no one sent through any questions. That's fine. But if you are watching, I hope I've given a lot to chew on. I hope it's not too confusing. I'm aware that I sometimes spread information. But I hope you've enjoyed that. And uh, we're going to finish it there. And I'll see you on Friday, where we're going to explore the book further. So thanks very much, guys.